0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Grace Toronto. If This is your first time here today. Uh, we want to extend a warm welcome to you. We are continuing our series on First uh, John. Uh, this is a new series that we had started in the new year, and we're going to continue that. And uh, to help us kick us off, we're going to have Kathy here read our scripture for today. So today's reading is from First John 1, verses 5 to 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My wife and I recently bought a rotating globe for our children, one of those that you see in a classroom that spins on on its axis to help them learn about where they live. And we showed them how the earth spins and moves around the sun, and we taught them that depending on where we are, the distance from the sun where we live, where we're located, we experience day and night, light and darkness. And then one of my daughters turned to me, and she looked at me and she says, Daddy, I think I understand. The greatest words to ever tell your father. In our passage today, the Apostle John uses a light and darkness metaphor to explain who God is and who we are. And if we want to be in fellowship with God, then our actions need to demonstrate that. See, John uses this stark contrast so that we are clear. You are either on this side of the fence in your faith, or you are on this side of the fence. Can't straddle both little bit of background. John wrote this letter to reassure Christians using contrasting and opposing words to reassure Christians to keep their faith in Christ and not to forsake what is true. And his use of the extremes is a way to draw lines in the sand. And his use of repetition is to reinforce what he is teaching to be true. If you were with us last week, Dan opened up our First John series by giving us the historical context of what prompted John to write this letter. Scholars believe John wrote this epistle due to one major contributing factor, which was that a group of people, the secessionists, had left their community, but not without causing division, sowing false teachings and confusion to the community. And as we continue from our text today, you'll notice So maybe literally forms of sentences that are kind of unique, what are called conditional sentences that start with if, and they form if-then statements. If this happens, then this will happen. If you forgot to wear your jacket this morning, then you will be cold. See, scholars aren't quite sure if John was directly addressing a specific issue related to the Christians that John knew at the time, or if he was demonstrating to them the logical consequences of what happens when this takes place. But what we do know that is that structured together, today's verses form to give us an assurance test, a way to help us identify whether we are true followers of Christ. And this morning we're going to look at that together. And to help us, these are three points which will form as our outline one, examine your God. Two, examine your walk. And three, examine your heart. Examine your God. These passages begin with this message that we have heard from him. And again, last week, Dan introduced us to the author whom we now know as the Apostle John and his personal testimony that John is testifying. See, John is telling us he was there. He heard from Jesus directly. He saw from his own eyes. He touched him with his own hands. And so when he says that, which was from the beginning, John is talking about Jesus. In our passage today, John continues. He has an even better message. God is is light, and in him is no darkness at all. John is referring to God's nature and who he is. And scholars have noted that there could be three possible reasons why John would have used this kind of contrasting, stark imagery. Could have been to address the false teachings that I mentioned before of the people that had left the community. Could have been to counter the Gnostic thinking at the time, or it was used to leverage the motifs of the ancient religions, their culture of the day. See, the secessionists were teaching false doctrines, and perhaps John was trying to get them back to the fundamentals of the faith, of the truth. The Gnostics taught about the distinction between the material and the spiritual, where they saw the body was inherently evil and the spirit was considered pure. And the ancient religions taught a duality and morality of good and evil, and maybe John was trying to counter that. And while we can't pinpoint the exact intent what John was speaking on these terms, what we can gather, though, This duality, this polarity, this contrast is used very clear in John's teachings. Karen Jobes, professor of New Testament, has noted John's use of this duality. In fact, there are 23 occurrences of this Greek word, phos, light, used in over 16 verses. And we know this quite well, don't we? How do we know? Where have we heard it? Most nobly, in John's own gospel writings. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1.5. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8.12. Believe in the light when you have the light, so that you may become children of light. John 12.36. And so on. Yet this imagery, this motif that we see, is, is not something that is new one can simply turn back to the Old Testament, back to the very beginning of Genesis, and you can see this for yourself. Since the beginning of time, light and darkness have demonstrated a theme of separation. God simply spoke, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. In Genesis 1. So when we see these references, light and darkness. How do we define it? What is referred here as light and darkness? Now if you're someone like me who visualizes things in charts and tables and express, uh, sorry, uh, spreadsheets, um, Microsoft Excel, you can sort of visualize these things in two columns. On one hand you have light defined intellectually, knowledge, truth, morally, pure, Holiness, defined spiritually, perfection, and righteousness. And on the other column, you have darkness, defined intellectually, ignorance, and falsehood. Defined morally, impure, unholiness, defiled, defined spiritually, imperfection, and sin. What John has done for us is that he has laid out a case for us to see who God is. His character... His being is held in one sentence. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And how do we take that to be true? I think when we examine the Bible, we see God through and through and how he describes himself to us and the relationship that he has with his covenant people that you and I are in. God who, despite us turning away from him, desires a relationship with you so that he is willing and given himself so that we can have communion with him. Countless times and times again, we see how this God, who despite her disobedience, remains faithful to his promise. And so what are we to believe of him? The Westminster Shorter Catechism has attempted to summarize for us in a very concise statement. It reads, God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. See, I believe in our text today that John is telling us to look at God. Look at who he is. Examine him, for he is holy, true, and set apart. And if we are made in his image, then we are to be like him, to follow after him, because this is our creator. Leviticus 19, First 1 Peter 1.16, 1 Thessalonians 4.7 all say the same thing. Essentially the message is be holy because I, because God is holy. This is God's invitation to us. But this invitation is not one we receive that we commonly now nowadays for our celebrations and our events where we can RSVP. We have the option to do so. See, it's God's people, this is who we are. And this is John's case, and, and why I believe the rationale for his extreme contrasts, do you see that as well? See him, examine, understand him, as the apostle John did. But most importantly, recognize that our moral character, who we should be, designed to be as human beings, is to reflect him and his light intellectually, morally, Spiritually. If we are to follow and worship after God and to behold Him, we need to know who He is. 17th century theologian uh, Stephen Charnock, in his book The Existence and Attributes of God, said this We must first believe that He is and that He is what He declares Himself to be. Before we can seek Him, adore Him, and devote our affections to Him, we cannot pay God a due and regular homage unless we understand him and his perfections, what he is. And we can pay him no homage at all unless we believe that he is. So, how do we examine and see God rightly? See God for who he is and not based on our own understanding. We do that by reading what he has given us his word, the Bible and seeing how he describes himself to be, how he deals with unrepentant people, how he fellowships with humanity through all time, and how he desires to commune with you and I. If you're visiting us this morning and you're on a journey of faith, you may not see God this way. God doesn't appear to be light, and in fact, you might be having some doubts and maybe disagree with what this passage is actually saying to you. This God does not line up with your personal experiences. See, I remember when I first encountered this problem, I also had my doubts. But when I began studying the Bible, when I began wrestling with this narrative of this love for God, for his people, I realized that my struggle with God was mainly because I was imposing my own will, my own understanding of what God is rather than who he has revealed himself to be. And I doubted him because his will did not align with mine. I wanted God to act whatever whenever He was called upon, rather than letting God be God. What we witness when we read the Bible is that we see a God who reveals himself as a covenantal God, a God who makes and keeps His promises, a God who loves and is willing to forgive, a God who shows us mercy and ultimately a God whose redemptive promise spoken through the Old Testament is revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. What other religion has a God who allows us to come up close, to examine him, to develop a relationship with him? Is there another God like like this who desires to fellowship with you and I so that he would come to us? And if you're a Christian here today, This passage here helps us examine and ask this question. How well do you know your God? Have you come to examine him and learn from him about his holiness, his righteousness, his mercy and grace? What have you come to believe about this God? And secondly, John is telling us to examine how we walk In verses six to seven, we see the two words here that are familiar but yet unfamiliar. These two words, fellowship and walk, they are familiar because we know it from the English language, don't we? Because we believe we have, um, because we know it, we have studied it. But I believe we have to see it from the original language in this context. Let me first define these two words. John speaks of this word, fellowship. And used in the original meaning, other synonyms of fellowship define it as association, communion, close relationship. And seen in this way, then, fellowship involves parties that come together to form this close-knit of relationship where parties mutually come to know one another. And secondly, we are introduced to this concept of walk, The verb walk is a Hebrew idiom that means the way you live and behave. See, idioms are expressions or phrases used in a specific language which may have a different meaning when translated back to our English. But we have some familiar with that, don't we? Our Western culture has adopted this language and we have similar sayings like, talk the talk and walk the walk, which basically imply that your actions need to line up with your words. Putting these two words in its rightful context, then John is telling us that our participation and fellowship with God is not merely head knowledge, but involves an act of living and doing. Our actions and our walk need to line up with our relationship with God, and this is not new to us. We teach and place a value on our actions. We demonstrate to our children that our actions speak louder than words, and so what? The apostle John is telling us here is that true fellowship with God means that our actions must reflect his character, his values, the way he has outlined for us to live. Think about this for a minute. If you're in a close relation with someone, your spouse, your friend, a family member, a coworker, and they tell you not to do something, and you have agreed based on your common values and your closeness of this relationship not to do this, But then you go behind their back and you do it anyway. What has happened here? But whether this person finds out or not, you have actually gone against your agreement, against your word, have you not? See, oftentimes we label these actions as simply being hypocritical or inconsistent. But here John goes to the extreme. He wants us to show us what is true and untrue, truth and untruth, and even if you're contemplating these actions, even considering this, you stand on this side. So if God is light and we are to be in communion with him, then why would we choose to live in darkness? Why would you stand on this side of darkness, of ignorance and falsehood, of impurity, of unholiness and perfection and sin? And we can stand with him. All that is light, knowledge, truth, purity, holiness, perfection, And righteousness. Do you see what John is saying to us? If you are a Christian today and you are currently not walking with the Lord, John is giving all of us a sharp rebuke. We are essentially going against who God is, is designed for us. A covenant people who are set apart and to be like Him. Thankfully, there are two sides to what John is saying here. As he flips the coin, he gives us some assurance to those who are walking in the light. First, those who genuinely have professed their faith, know God and have received Christ and live out their actions, have fellowship with God. We can see that in this text. It is the opposite of what we just talked about. We have this unbroken relationship with God which extends to human fellowship with one another. Scholars have looked at this sentence structure and maybe wondered if John meant only fellowship with God. See, John could have said fellowship with him, meaning only with God. But instead, he mentions this word which translates to one another. I want you to look around us right now. Look around to who you are sitting amongst. See, we have a diversity in this room. Men, women, young, old, different cultures where we were born from. We heard from Joseph and Jamie's testimony today of how they came from a different community and were able to come to ours and they felt invited from our hospitality. It's because our common denominator is in Christ. Wherever we are in our walks of faith, whether we are seeking to pursue Christ and long for what he has to give, when we live in the light, our relationship with God extends to one another. This enables us to live in fellowship with one another. We're not just a social club here that eats and serves social causes or prays together, but we are actually a church, a body that has fellowship in Christ, which enables us to love and care for one another. We care for the sick, the hurting, the broken, the marginalized. We pray for our city and the world. This is God's design for us and the reason why we call ourselves a family of Christ. Second John tells us that when we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Here we have maybe a bit of distraction, a bit of a noise. See, some of us have heard the gospel message and we know it as such. God created us to fellowship with him but tainted with sin through the fall of Adam and we were separate from God but we were reconciled and offered reconciliation through eternal life through Jesus Christ. Christ who lived a sinless life, died out of love and grace for us, became the atonement for our human sin on the cross. Rose three days later to demonstrate his power over sin and death, and through faith in Jesus, this Jesus, we can experience forgiveness, restoration, and a living hope. All we have to do is repent and come to him. So now that we know that, what we know, we know this gospel message, that we are offered this justification and continued justification for our sins, meaning it captures all our sins for all times. So when we read our text in verse seven, there is a, a bit of unclearity in here, don't we? Is John implying that our actions of walking in the light will cleanse us? Is that what saves us? Does that mean our actions have in part some way of justifying us? See, no, John is reminding us that it is the blood of Jesus, his action on the cross, that gives us our cleansing. It's not just strictly the teachings of Jesus, it is not just our works. Our actions themselves have no saving power. It is through our faith in what Jesus did, what Christ did on the cross, that gives us our liberty. And our actions are simply an expression of our faith in Christ. They are outward indicators of how we are to walk in the light. What are these outward indicators of those who walk in the light? Those who walk in the light abide in Christ. And those who abide in Christ exemplify something called fruit. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 tells us that these fruits are these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I remember when I was working... In the business world, I would sometimes encounter some Christians. They didn't explicitly tell me about their faith, and I didn't really know that they were. They didn't identify as such. But I had a hunch, this feeling that something about them was different. The way they engaged and interacted with you, the way they interacted with others, how they handled conflict, and how they handled themselves. See, they had these outward indicators. That reflected an inward reality. There was joy, peace, and love in their life. And thirdly, lastly, we are to examine our heart. From verses 8 to 10, John gives us actions that imply speech. He uses words like say and confess. And it would be easy just to look strictly at the literal text here and to assume that our words are the only thing that God receives. I think our words can be deceptive. Our words can be a veil against what we truly want and mean. I think what here we need to look at is actually our hearts. In Matthew 12, 23, Jesus tells us that the mouth speaks from the heart. Our hearts, while not a physical heart, reveal an inner reality, the center of who we are. So going back to what John was saying about our walk here, he is implying that our words, we don't lie, express a deeper reality within us. And like a surgeon, our words can give us a scope to the inward reality to our heart. So now we're getting to the main message of what John is addressing, who we are. That is, we can be ignorant or in denial of our spiritual condition, And in verse 8, we see this statement. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. John is addressing this claim of those that see that they have no sin. This claim can be broken down into two camps. On one side, you may have be one person who denies the presence of sin. Or on the other camp, maybe an individual person who denies that he or she is a sinner. But John here is saying that both, both lead you down to this path of deception. If one says that they have no sin, they are denying the presence and existence of sin. Instead, they are grounding and explaining their world through our own morality, through our own version of what is good and evil. It's expressed through humanistic or philosophical viewpoints. It is grounded in the fact that our morality can be grounded and found in human reasoning, empathy, and ethical principles. Here, definitions are created of what is morally good and what is morally bad. Humans are free to do and engage in whatever behavior that they want. And in the other camp, there's the view that they would be, that they are not sinners. That while there may be the presence of sin, humans and people are able to correct it. We are, to, we are able to work against it. And that all the actions that come from the goodness of the heart can actually correct us. That we are by helping others, we are putting things in our merit box. Goodness can outweigh the bad. And this can be demonstrated through our personal and collective responsibility I recently read a story about a journalist in the 20th century who had written to authors and leading thinkers around the world. And the journalist posed a very simple question and he was looking for all these responses. Essentially the question was, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? To which G.K. Chesterton, an English philosopher and Christian apologist wrote back and said, Dear Sir, I am. I am. One only needs to look around the world to see that we have conflicts and issues that we can not solve from mainly from our own standpoint. Our struggles with anger, pride, greed, lust, control, to which the Bible offers an answer. It all comes from the root of sin. And this sin has affected all of us and poisoned our hearts. See, we may be convinced that we can do better But without an objective source of truth, all of us, including myself, can be misguided and misled. And pursuing down this path eventually puts us down this path of self-deception. Up until now, John has been drawing lines in the sand. He is marking off hypothetical situations which can be seen as true situations if we follow through. He has given us a logical progression of these statements and he has pointed to our sinful conditions Exposing our actions, our thoughts. It doesn't feel really good, does it? In fact, when we read this, it sort of stings a little bit. It can turn us off from reading this. See, if this was all to the Christian message, that it is just a set of rules which state you belong here and I belong here, we are divided by our boundaries, defined by our actions, marked by our sins. If that is the Christian message then it can appear that God is only interested in our actions. And if we are morally corrupt, then we stay condemned and stay condemned. We are condemned and stay condemned. See, but in verse 9 here, John points us back to this ability that reminds us, that assures us that we are not stuck here. There's more to this message that yes, we are sinners. We are sinners, but we don't have to stay here in our condemnation. Verse 9 is a turning point in the passage, but we can so easily miss it. See, our confession, our confession here can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess means agreement. It means agreeing that your evaluation of me is the same evaluation that I have of myself. It means that we agree to what God is saying of us. That we are sinners, that we need his grace, his love, his mercy, that our acts against are against his character and who he is. And when John talks about God's faithfulness and just nature, he is again pointing back to the character of God, who he is, what he has done, and his nature as a promise keeper. Can you see the hope that is available to you here today? This is a gracious God who is willing to forgive us. This is a God that allows us to come to him when we have offended him through Christ. God that does not need us to beg and grovel at his feet, nor need us to sacrifice anything else. All we have to do is confess our sins because nothing we can say or do will atone for our sin except putting our faith in Christ. By admitting our sin and confessing, we receive this forgiveness from a holy God who can walk away clean, righteous, and restored. And know this, the promises for those who don't know him yet, and yet, also, as a believer, we also need this, who have just engaged in our sin. Whether you you are examining the faith today or not yet placed your faith in Jesus or you are a Christian who has received the faith and believe in the gospel, our path back to God comes from our hearts. And for the Christian here, it's not that you have fallen out of grace once you have sinned, no. Once you have made that commitment to Christ, you remain in him. But there may be times when you feel like after you have sinned that you feel crippled and you need that love and assurance. You need to get back right with God. This is how we do it. God here gives us a chance to dust ourselves off again and get back up. And all we have to do is confess, agree with our condition and what we have done. This is our repentance, a turning of our lives to go back towards the light. And finally, in verse 10, we receive the summary. It all goes back to acknowledging who God is and who we are. It is essentially Romans 3.23 that reminds us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God, whom God put forward as a propitiation for, by his blood to be received by faith. See God is not a liar. And that is not who he is. If that is true. Then we are the ones who need to examine ourselves and our heart. What are the implications of this? If you are someone who is investigating the faith this morning, this message is also for you. You have heard who God is, seen who he is. You've seen the contrasts of what God's love is for you. The question this morning is, which side are you on? God has given us an opportunity to come to him and he wants to see you on his side. And for the believer, remember that you are a sinner that has been saved by grace in the blood of Jesus, but don't keep on sinning. While it is true that God's forgiveness covers your ongoing future sins, that would be an abuse of his grace. We need to address the habitual sins in our lives. We've got to get rid of it. And as Puritan John Owen wrote in his book, The Mortification of Sins, kill sin or it be killing you. If this is something that you are struggling with and that it's difficult to share in your small groups or with your friends, we invite you to come talk to us. Come talk to our elders and our pastors that were here in the front this morning. Come talk to our women's ministry directors Grace and Gwen. Come talk to us. And then this morning I think there's actually maybe a third category. Those that feel like they are in between, that they are straddling this line of division and you feel that you are stuck. This third category Categories, those that feel like they're stuck in this line of division. You may at one point have decided to come to God or investigating him, but somehow you found yourself stumbling off this path. This is God's message to you. That it's not too late to come to the light, to walk in light. God's love and his forgiveness is ready to receive you. And he wants you to come to him. Finally, some of us may be thinking about those who are in this category. They are your close family members. They are your friends. They are those that know you. Whatever it is, I pray that you can encourage, you can be encouraged to pray for them and to continue praying for them. That God will open their hearts to see where they are and that they can be receptive to this message of grace and forgiveness. See, John's message is a message of assurance, of comfort, of hope. What lies in polarity gives us clarity, darkness and light, night and day, black and white. John, who is a messenger for us, has delivered this message to us from God. And like a moth that is drawn to the light, we can also be drawn to the true light. This morning, know who God is. Examine him. Find your freedom in Christ. Experience his grace and live in the light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you that you have demonstrated who you are and who we are. May we come to examine you and see you in this light. We thank you for the grace and forgiveness that you have offered us through Jesus Christ. May we take that and behold that today and understand what you have spoken to us today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Usually we have time uh, for a Q&A after uh, the sermon, but um, this morning we do have a full service and so uh, we are going to go now to our song of response.